and you're listening to The Collabcast, a podcast about pop culture and the creative life from the Asian American perspective. And hey everyone, welcome to episode 106 of the Collabcast. It's Friday, February the 10th, 2017, the week three of The Resistance. Welcome everybody. <laughs> I'm, my name is Marvin. And I'm Minji. And we're your hosts for this weekly look at Asian and pop culture. Or Asian American. <laughs> so pop we're and looking at Asian. Pop and Asian American <laughs> culture. It's Friday, it's fine, you're tired. Uh, we're joined this week by a very special guest. He's uh, Mr. Greg Watanabe, actor, sketch comedian. Um, Le Broadway star. <laughs> yeah. A member of the original Broadway cast for Allegiance, uh, which uh, is playing in theaters um, coming up next week, right? February 19th. Yeah. yeah. And all around cool guy. Minji met him last night at the uh, We on the 8th. Two nights ago. Two nights ago. Well, you know. Since we are on Friday. We're releasing on Friday. Yes. We're recording on... Is it, Thursday? We're revealing all our tricks. Stop it. <laughs> Welcome to the Welcome show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Thank you for uh, joining us last minute. Full disclosure, this is uh, we, we, we were supposed to be talking to people from New York, but then they had an epic snowstorm. And, and then so we, we had to, I had to ask Minji, like, do you have any guests? No, I had already, been, this had already been a long, so this is destiny. See, this is why I believe in manifestation. You have to just say, we've been talking about this since last fall. And then I didn't know if you were in New York or and in Alaska. And then mm-hmm. when you're back in LA and whatnot. But then, you know, AJ is amazing and brought mm-hmm. you for the eighth. And I'm like, score! <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so it all worked out. All right. It all worked out. Minji yeah. likes bringing her fellow cow bears to the oh, podcast. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> There. I think the only other Triton that's been on is like Phil from Wong Fu. That's a pretty big one, though. <laughs> I think he counts for multiple. Yeah, but we've had like at least 10 cow bears, I think. <laughs> because we're amazing. Apparently just... everyone cool in, in, <laughs> in pop culture is from cow. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> well, that's so refreshing in my circles that I run. Everyone seems to come from Yale. So. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'll help you represent. <laughs> okay. But welcome to the show. So Thank glad you. you can join us. Yeah, um, excited to be here. Yeah. Well, we start the podcast off every week with a roundtable discussion where we go around and talk about what's on our mind in the world of Asian American and pop culture. Um, so this week, uh, let's start with our guest. Greg, what's on your mind? Oh, man. Okay. Well, um, you know, it's funny because I, I, I'm not really much of a pop cultural person. Like, I'm kind of the, yeah, non uh, the things I was trying to think what counts as popular culture because right now you know with the with the Trump presidency and uh, you know all the crazy things that are going on I mean I feel like that's popular culture right now it is I you would know, say that's valid you know when I turn on um, uh, the show I, say I like watching Colbert and basically since uh, since the Trump win his opening monologue has been amazing you know but that's the that's what's uh, pop culturally, you know, on top right now. So he's perfectly suited to it, but he's also completely justified because of all the crazy things that have been <laughs> said constantly, you know. Uh-huh. So it, it, and he even said it. He's, you know, <laughs> at one point it's like, 
uh, it's awful, but it's also like, and now I have a reason to exist. <laughs> it's both a curse and a gift. It um, is. That's true. My, the content and uh, <laughs> endless. Yeah. My girlfriend was just talking to me about how she usually goes on Facebook because she, she keeps a very low profile social media presence. So she goes on Facebook to look at you know cat videos and to de-stress. But now every day is like everyone's posting about what's going on. Um, everyone has their hot take. You can start to realize, oh, I have friends that believe different things and how to deal with that. And I think that's part, that's good to like, you know, work through that, but it's been exhausting. Yeah. Well, um, you know, that's, that's the place that we live in now. You know, I mean, it, it's, uh, I think, I think of it as information, you know, as, as, as outraging as it is, you know, (laughs) as, as distressing as it is. I mean, you can't, um, you can't fight back unless you know what's going on. So, you know, you end up spending a lot of time just trying to catch up with all the crazy things that are going on. Right. And we, we're at a moment now, I mean, this won't be released until Friday, but Thursday, and they just, the Ninth District just upheld the uh, temporary stay yeah, on the ban. So, um, you know, that's a huge victory, and it's looking like they have a very narrow path to try and um, uh, undo that. Which is not to say that it could, you know, might not still happen. The Supreme Court is such a question mark. And yeah. What, um, uh, well, that's uh, the next step for that is the Supreme Court. Yeah. Which is well, still they, they one could, seat short, right? Yeah. It, they, so there's a couple of things it could do. It seems like the expediency would seem to say that if they want to kick it up to the Supreme Court, they're going to have to do that sooner and later. So they're not going to be able to get Gorsuch in there yeah. uh, in time. But they could also try and send it back down to the district uh, for for the full district court, all eleven judges. But that won't necessarily uh, because of the there's no dissent on the decision and uh, unanimous decision. <laughs> very ironclad they didn't win any concessions at all yeah. it seems like um you know the only thing that could happen later is that they won't be able to undo the 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 stay of the ban but they might be able to challenge they, they might be able to send it up and say we're going to we're going to execute this now and um uh, in, in a different way, they could rewrite an executive order, and then that might end up going to the Supreme Court when Gorsuch is there. And, and th- once they start testing the constitutionality of it, then then that's where the the rubber roots in the road. You know? Right. So it's um, really interesting, and I'm interested to get Minji's take on it because I remember during the election cycle, we we talked about voting rights and civics, and you know I was giving Minji a civics lesson like every week. He always week. does, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, but right now it feels like it's it's hard to keep track of everything that's going on. But at the same time, it's so interesting watching. Just I don't know if this is the first. This is definitely the first time in in our lifetime that we are seeing checks and balances like in action. Right, we're seeing right now it's literally one branch of government going against the other two. It's kind of a test of whether or not is it going the against founding, them? yeah, the judicial branch is literally going against the executive branch. Oh, yeah, okay, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see if the systems that were set up at the founding of our nation in our constitution will hold. You know, because it's de- it's literally the battle for the future of the of the nation. You know, yeah, mm, man, and it's failed before. Ask yeah. Japanese Americans, <laughs> right? Which is like, and again. I don't know. This it's again it's a lot to digest and I think people have has because of this overwhelming quantity of information that we're all trying and honestly, I, I'm full disclosure, I admit I have not I've been a lazy citizen. You know, I haven't I don't know all the 
the ins and outs of the Supreme Court. I don't know the the process or the the pathway from going from circuit like those are new terms to me even though I might have known that they exist which I learned in civics class which again <laughs> public education don't get me started on that because I love it I I value it but I'm saying like you learn it when you're what 16 17 and when does it actually become applicable when is it real life and when is it something that you like really are interested in even and like you know things are in the hanging in the balance that impact you yeah it's it's that now right so I feel like I'm hesitant to say say my opinion sometimes because I don't want to be misinformed and saying all sorts of nonsense that doesn't make sense in in the slightest, right? I mean, for a lot of people, our age, this is the first time we've ever had to pay attention, right? Right, because we're adults now. Things uh, we pay taxes, you know, we're paying the government taxes. We're uh, for the first time we're worried that the government that we support through our taxes might not be using that money to like. You know, swear to God, though, to, maybe this is a reflection of like how we've learned generation generationally and culturally. Like my parents are immigrants from Korea. They never sat me down and talked to me about taxes. Mm-hmm. Again, the only point of education that I had was from civics class. Well, full disclosure, I've slept through most of it. <laughs> so like as an adult, right, I didn't know where even I understood money was being taken out of my paycheck and I didn't know what that was for. I just kind of, you go along with it until it impacts you, right? right. And you don't know that like, oh, well, like people, you'd, you'd hear it and you're like, oh, I'm a tax-paying citizen. I was like, what does that even mean? Like, so, <laughs> then, so then you're given what, you know what I'm saying? Those yeah. dots don't connect. And I feel like for right, like right now in a very intense way, all of those dots are like coming, slamming together. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's a silver lining. It's exhausting. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Hence the Epsom salts. Like I just I keep raving about them. Yeah. I'm trying to relax and meditation is like my thing now more than ever because I just need to stay emotionally balanced to deal with all this. Well, that's a good segue. If uh, Well, Greg, do you have any last things to say about? I, I, <laughs> I, feel like I, I, I actually do. I, I just want to say one thing. Uh, and I, I guess I would speak to the exhaustion part a little bit um, because I'm not an activist, but I, I certainly have had wonderful conversations with many folks, um, including some of the people from NCRR, the Nike for uh, Civil Rights and uh, Redress, who were important for, for getting reparations for Japanese Americans in the 80s. Uh, uh, which led to the, the Civil Liberties Act and, um, and reparations being paid out and an apology being issued um, to, by the government to the Japanese American community. But um, you, the, it's a long road, you know, and you have to keep um, going, you know, mm-hmm. and you can't. I've heard phrases like fatigue, you know, and you yeah. can't afford to get fatigued because you have to keep your uh, eye on the next battle. And, and wits I, about you. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that is also alleviating in terms of the fatigue is uh, history. So knowing that you're looking at something that is uh, systemically cyclical, it's a repetition. You know, um, this kind of oppression is really like um, by the numbers. You know, um, and I, I'll try and be brief here, but, um, you know, what we're seeing now with this ban 
you know, which is saying we're going to limit immigration. That's exactly what happened to Asian Americans. That mm-hmm. was one of the first things. We had immigrants here and nativists, racists, said, hey, Chinese people, no, Asian Exclusion Act, you can't come in anymore. Right. Then, they, then they said the, the 1910, the Japanese Gentlemen's Agreement, the government said, you know, we got way too many Japanese now. And you're talking about tiny percentages, right? right? Mm-hmm. But they, uh, they, they got Japan to say, okay, we won't send over any more, any more people. Then they passed a law that said, you know what, um, Japanese citizens cannot naturalize. You cannot become a citizen. And then they said, oh, alien land law. If you're not a citizen, you can't own land. You can't even buy a house. And then so they put their farms and things in their children's names, and then they started suing, and then they took that away from them too. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about by the time you get to the point where Pearl Harbor happens, um, you know, say like a 9-11 incident or some kind of um, uh, terrorist, ter- quote, a terrorist incident, something happens, um, you've, you've already created the tinder for um, – you've created a vulnerable populace who's been derided in uh, racist newspapers like cursed papers that – the unions at that time were really racist. They had all kinds of nativist propaganda, in which they were um, uh, vilifying Asian American and Japanese American communities. So that by the time Pearl Harbor happens, it's popular to uh, Executive 9066 and the exclusion order and all of that, which happens only on the West Coast, not right. in Japan, not in, not in uh, Hawaii, where you have um, they make up like I think two thirds of the population in Hawaii right. at that time. Uh, so it was untenable to try and, and, uh, and intern them. And they also knew, because they worked close with them, it's surrounded by very delicate military installations that they were not a threat. But it, it was popular enough so that they didn't have any political opposition. So that's really important to look ahead in terms of what we're looking at now. Because what we have is – and I wanted to say this last night, uh, the other night, which was – in the, the conclusion of the presidential uh, commission hearings on, on the internment of Japanese Americans, they concluded that the Japanese Americans were wrongly interned and incarcerated based on lack of political leadership, racism, and wartime hysteria. So that's an exact model of what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. for all of us to say, well, so this is the Muslim ban, that's one thing, and there's a sustained effort, and we have dangers that, that we have to look ahead to. Mm-hmm. And then we also have to look ahead to what some of those other elder activists are doing and the actions that they're taking and figure out a way that we can plug in. So that's what I wanted to say, is that that, that history is... is, a, is a, a, a roadmap to right. successful resistance. We've seen this before. Yeah. yeah. Do you see what I I'm like? <laughs> so can we anyway? Yeah, and you know, sustained resistance involve you know a lot of people say talk about self care, talk about taking care of yourself. It's gonna, we're in this for the long haul. It's not going to be a quick fix. So um, we got to talk like about that's going to be my role. We got to talk about relaxation. We have so, relaxation. Yeah, Minji, what's on your mind? Um, so part of my uh, cure, my healing properties of this world, <laughs> besides Epsom salt baths, which are incredible, you guys go do it. Um, <laughs> the, oh my god, it's life changing. But um, the one thing that's been carrying me through the last five days and giving me lots of uh, inspiration, joy, hope, um, and just passion to stay the course. Right, like to do, like gotta gear up for the, is Melissa McCarthy, and I kind of everything that I look at in pop culture, right, is through a lens of activism. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I think just 
by osmosis. You there's a there's a, a underlying tone of subtext of there's a purpose behind everything that you do. There's and I appreciate that. I don't know where it came from because I wasn't like part of marches as a child or anything like that. But living in the Bay, there's always something happening where people were um, discussing different political issues or talking about the latest clean water thing in a neighborhood. Like it was just a very active place to grow up. And then going to UC Berkeley, like kind of just really is <laughs> the Final thing. Did you ever um, hear about the joke? How many UC Berkeley students does it take to screw in a light bulb? All the people that are fighting, like <laughs> arguing for energy like use. And... 152, <laughs> like one to change it. Mm-hmm. Um, was it 101, I think. One to change it, 50 to protest the light bulb's right not to change, and 50 <laughs> to counter protest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Free speech movement. But um, anyway, Melissa McCarthy gave me life. And again, she came at a really, really great moment, which, again, you don't realize until the relief comes that, like, how much you've been holding in or, like, how you've been holding this breath and how wonderful it feels to laugh so hard. Um, I don't know. Did you watch the SNL skit? I I did. I thought she was amazing. And she's an amazing performer. And, you know, I've done a lot of sketch comedy. I belong to this group called the 18 Mighty Mountain Warriors. And... um, you know, we very much were inspired by groups like Culture Clash, the Latino uh, sketch comedy group, and uh, coming out of, um, you know, Teatro Campesino, where they were trained, which is um, theater is political. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the idea of political satire for, you know, a way to make a point and to influence people, you know, and inspire people, like, that that's really, um, you know, yeah, that's right up my alley. Like I love I, it. Yeah. And she just, oh, she nailed it. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about at the during the intro, which is, you know, when at times like this, you have, like, it's, especially in, in our current modern, like, media world, it's the comedians that really step up and really, you know, put things in the focus, or like point and out the absurdity. it's the way that they do it too because that's what I was also looking at. Not only like the fact that she nailed it and everybody like had a good laugh, but why? Why? What constitutes nailing it? What constitutes getting 12 million views in 24 hours? That is more, you know, you know what I mean? And again, it's all part and parcel of the age that we're living in. Because I think back on the last like super political, super viral SNL skit, that was Amy Poehler and Tina Fey when it was the Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton sketch. That was like way up there in terms of like, and this is back again when viral videos were still, we were still evolving, right? As, as the tech and we're, we're mobile now and all that stuff. So I want to, it's like comparing apples to oranges a little bit, but like contextually speaking, I just think comedy has such a powerful way of it's, it's pop culture at its finest, in my opinion. You know what I mean? Not everything has to be making a political statement. That's not what I'm saying. But when it does, and it does it well, how many people you know, across party lines had a laugh about that and what it made them think of and what they went and researched to like negate that? Like, it, what did she say? What is she referring to? And why is that joke funny? What's this gum thing? You know, like, you know, it made people curious if they didn't know why they were laughing, they needed to go find out why. And what did that do? So I just think it's just it's a spark, right? That you have this laugh. Some people who've been stressed the hell out got some emotional relief, some catharsis. And then on top of that, it's now going to spark people to get this much more informed about why that was funny, mm-hmm. why that's, what is she being satirical about? 
And I read the comments. I, I, st- I spent like a good 45 minutes reading through the comments. Well, it's also made its way back into the real world because there was a headline read today that said um, Sean Spicer goes full of Melissa McCarthy during his latest press conference. Yeah. And it's like become it's become memefied into our consciousness now, you know. And immediately, like the the immediacy of that is just like all of it is very fascinating. And for the for politics and pop culture to be kind of right now one and the same um, is fascinating. And I think that's very I don't know. I'm wondering 20 years from now how we're going to look back on this time. I mean, but what do you think about the fact that we're getting our like you know the news? They're they're having a hard time. People are calling like fake news, all that stuff. Um, where it's we're getting our you know, a lot of people are getting their news from comedy shows, essentially. You know, Colbert, Seth Meyers, Daily Show, things like that. Yeah, well, it's there's two things there, right? An administration and an executive branch trying to delegitimize the uh, the press is uh, distressing. Yeah. Um, calling out personal uh, reporters and also independent uh, news organizations and calling them failing and bad and fake. I mean, it, this is um, it, it's uh, it, it's horrible. I mean, it, it's really dangerous. I, I feel like this this orange. Thing, doesn't understand the, the the power of his words as the president of the United States and how m- much more responsibility he has than when he was just a billionaire spoiled brat. Um, so there's that. And then there's the other aspect, which is, um, uh, well, I, I wanted to speak to, to the comedy part, which is, um, you know, because what you're talking about, people getting their news from comedians, basically comedians are opinion pieces you know they're they're if you know what the news is then when i make a comment on it then then that's an understanding that we share together and if people laugh all of those people laughing are sharing on that same opinion and especially if it's an insightful and incisive opinion about uh, the absurdity of what things uh, 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 of especially politicians and the actions that they take so uh, i i would say that you know we have to still watch real news yes, <laughs> and there's yes. plenty of great organizations that are doing that Washington Post New York Times uh, you know there's Reuters lots of plenty of neutral well researched uh, news places but you, to be able to have this idea of uh, getting opinion makers I mean like a Mark Twain of our time you know mm-hmm. someone who can uh, affect public opinion large public opinion by um, ex- uh, 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 in, in concisely pointing out the absurdity of a particular position, you can change the political will. And I think that that's really important. Once we become engaged, then we also have to engage with the ideas. Right. So, and that's what political satire does. I love the political, and I think that it's, it's, again, it's just kind of like, it's starting a ball rolling of, with all the, the absurdity of the comments and the, like the vitriol behind it. I think it's prompting a lot of people to jump up out of apathy, whereas they would not partake and they would not, they're just like, I'm not going to even go there. I don't think anybody, <laughs> there's, it's fewer and fewer now. Okay, there's, I'm sure there's still people, but there's fewer and fewer now who, who can continue to live in this universe and get by by that. Um, and I think that's a great thing. You know, wh- whatever the opinion is, if you're, <sighs> Engaged. The engagement part is something that, as distressing as it can be, and it's hard again to have these like Facebook wars and to like see <laughs> the comments. But at least it's coming to the surface, and at least we're addressing them. Again, yeah. I'm trying to just 
Maintain positivity. Yeah. But, I mean, I look at it this way, too. What's really great about political satire and successful, like Melissa McCarthy's thing, is that um, it's a kind of truth. Mm-hmm. You know, so when she says something, she does the thing with the gum, or when she like picks up the the podium and it's like smashing into the person, which is you know you could say that's a that it, it, you know the the animus of not just trying to bully that person into believing what you want them to hear. Physically, yeah, the but podium. it's yeah, and, uh, and and it makes you laugh, and that that truthful response that you have with your laugh means that they said something true. Yeah, and no matter what anyone else says, comment wise, yeah. you can't escape the truth of the fact that when she made that joke millions of people laugh because they knew exactly what that fucking was. Exactly. So it's like you just called him out on that thing and that will always be the case and that's what people will remember. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, really quickly, let's go on to my topic, which was um, football happened this past weekend. Did it? <laughs> I don't know if you guys, um, any of you guys are football watchers, what? football game watchers. Um, Super Bowl LI, which is like 51, I guess. L is, is 50. 15, in, yeah. Yeah. Um, Super Bowl Lee, it's the Asian Super Bowl. Oh, Super Bowl Lee. Happened. um, The Falcons fell to the Patriots in overtime. Um, But I'm not going to talk about the game and how it started off boring and got really exciting, but then the wrong team won. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Even just the symbology of the uh, mascots, (laughs) the... The Falcons flying free and then the Patriots. <laughs> yeah. It's, the Patriots have always won. Because like, I remember Super Bowl um, 2002, which is the first Super Bowl after 9-11. The Patriots also won that year. So I'm not a Tom Brady fan. <laughs> it's just like, you know. He's it's, probably not a fan of your progressive views. Either. I know. Um, they're just a fan of making, you know, poetic statements about when the Patriots win. Mm. But I wanted to talk quickly about... Just the reason why most people watch the Super Bowl, which is for the commercials. And Same this year, well, this year there was a bunch of, uh, speaking of you know, polit- making political statements, but there was a bunch of commercials that had messages of equality and you know, compassion. And like um, Audi had a commercial where a girl was winning a soapbox race against a bunch of boys. And then Budweiser had a commercial about you know, the founder of Bush, Anheuser-Busch coming to America and Against all odds, making it you know to to um, Detroit or something. I think. Um, oh, I've seen that on YouTube. That played before Melissa McCarthy's. Yeah, thing. yeah. I <laughs> think then, it's in, so I did see it. St. Louis, Missouri. I think. Yeah. St. Louis. Yeah, yeah. And both of these um, commercials got hated on so badly. Like people were bo- like, "Let's boycott Budweiser, the most American of shitty beers." And you know, I can't believe they're feeding us this feminist bullshit during the Super Bowl. This is for men. You know, things like that. This is all and, on Twitter. Facebook, Twitter, like a lot of people got, like people are saying how, you know, Super Bowl commercials should be funny and fun, like not like they shouldn't make us think, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't listening. say anything. Yeah. <laughs> I was I just, listening to something really interesting that was talking about these, some of these commercials and one of the people mentioned offhand, um, you know, the thing is, it's not like, because it, they were talking about whether or not companies should engage in any kind of political statement, right. you know, and whether or not it behooves them to or not, depending on, you know, the specificity of their brand, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing one of the women said was, you have to understand that they spend millions of dollars producing these things, and that happens over a long period of time. So it made me speculate, because they didn't follow up on this. So <laughs> do you think that the, this slate of commercials represents... A lot of companies believe that Hillary Clinton was going to win. 
you know, because the, 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 the whole idea that was the, the crux of the, the conversation during the final election season was, well, emails, but then the ban <laughs> and the wall, you yeah. know, like all yeah. of this xenophobic language. Yeah. So, but all the polls said that, I mean, she was way, way ahead. They had to, they had to think that these companies weren't actually trying to make a political statement, but they felt like once she had won, they wanted they to, to celebrate. That's actually yeah. super interesting because. I never thought about that. that, that does make sense because yeah they these commercials take a long time to, to produce these spots are they cost like what five million dollars per 30 seconds we, we had the same discussion the about about um like kubo and how you know the casting was very problematic when when um when juxtaposed with uh moana and how how faithful that casting was and it was because these animated features take years and years and years to to make and who knew that oscar star was going to happen that uh, whitewashed out was going to happen in between this time. So I could definitely see something like that because once you sink all that money in, like you just, you can't get it back, you know, you can't produce a new one. I need to watch all these commercials now. Well, I mean, there was also the controversy. And I'm, I'm terrible. I haven't watched Lady Gaga's performance yet too, but even with the whole, like her, there are all sorts of crazy mechanics going on with this performance that yeah. she was still clearing. I know that she wanted to make a statement, but then, she did through her music. Right. And then it was otherwise stated it wasn't as like overt as these commercials. Yeah. What's great is uh, I read the a Teen Vogue piece on that. Very was nice. about, Teen yeah. Vogue, the latest, the, yeah. the new like no. yeah, it's source crazy. for progressive They're, news. Yeah. yeah. I read like five or six articles that I just thought were super right on. Uh, but when it was great, it was like Mike, because Mike Pence was there. At the Super Bowl, right? And this is Mr. Anti-LGBTQ, right? Who wants to pass all of these laws about, you know, uh, conversion therapy and, and crazy, crazy things, you know? Um, and you know, here she is singing this, uh, this song about, you know, I'm born, I was born this way. Yeah. And someone speculated it's the first time anyone ever said the word or sang the word transgender and the, at the Super Bowl <laughs> in front of like this anti-LGBTQ asshole. So, you know, it, the, the title of the article was great because it was like, if you didn't think Lady Gaga's performance was political, you're, you, you weren't paying attention and you're probably straight. Because that's like the gay anthem, right? yeah. her song. Right? So I don't know. Yeah, it's just like Super Bowl is the biggest stage to make a statement because so many people watch it. Um, I actually, I enjoyed most of the, the commercials and the game turned out to be pretty good until the end. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back for more with Greg after this. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to episode 106 of The Collabcast. This podcast, of course, is part of Collaboration, a nonprofit organization supporting Asian Americans in the arts and entertainment, discovering, developing, showcasing, and connecting the creative talents of the Asian American community. As always, you can learn more about Collaboration by going to our website at www.collaboration.org, where you can also find more of our content, including videos, blog posts, and past episodes of the Collabcast. Collaboration is also currently recruiting in all of our cities across the nation. If there is a Collaboration city near you and you'd like to help us support your local Asian American art scene, feel free to shoot us an application. You can find that at the Get Involved section of the website. Uh, the website, again, is www.collaboration.org. A quick reminder that Collaboration is also going to be a part of the South by Southwest Festival. Um, this March in Austin, for the first time, we'll be hosting a panel about Asian Americans in diversity as part of the South by Southwest Convergence Conference. That panel is taking place Sunday, March 12th. 
Collaboration is also presenting the first ever all Asian American music showcase at the South by Southwest Music Festival. That showcase is taking place on Thursday night, March 16th at Lambert's Barbecue in Austin. If you're going to be at the South by Southwest, if you're going to be at the South by Southwest Festival, please stop by and participate. More information can be found on the website. The website, one more time, is www.collaboration.org. The Collabcast is also a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of awesome podcast programs brought to you by Asian American hosts. Each week, we'd like to plug a different podcast from our collective. And this week, I'm really excited to tell you about Saturday School. Saturday School is a podcast hosted by Ada Sang and Brian Hu, two former film critics who have covered the Asian American film scene for years, who come together to teach you about Asian American film and pop culture history. This Saturday marks the return of the show for its second term. You might remember that their first season was all about Asian American comedies, and I'm really excited to hear about their new season with the topic is Asians in Love. You can listen to Saturday School as well as the other great podcasts of the Potluck Collective by going to the website www.podcastpotluck.com. Be sure to check out and subscribe to all of our other great programs as well. And that'll do it for this week's announcements. Let's get you back to the show. And we're back. Welcome back to episode 106 of the Collabcast. We're here with our guest, Greg Watanabe. Howdy. How's it Howdy. going? <laughs> Very good. Very yeah. good. Glad to still be here. We're glad to have you. I'm like, my brain is swimming with so many thoughts and questions. Why don't you get started then? So, yeah. Greg, I mean, okay, we've, I've, I've been following you on social media for a while. I know that you were part of Allegiance. That was like the biggest, I mean, I really wanted to be able to see that actually on Broadway. It meant so much to me that this musical existed, that these stories were being told. I'm not even Japanese-American, but who cares? That has nothing to do with it. It's just, you know, I come from a lifetime of untold stories, right? And um, not seeing myself and a lot of my peers and being part of collaboration for this number of years, us having this collective feeling of like, when's it our turn to be the center of the story? And that's something that you talked about yesterday at We Own the Eighth, and like you're talking about your identity and how it's the lens through which you see everything and that it changes. And you were just saying a little bit before the break how when we're the center of the story, it changes everything, right? So I don't know. I'm just like so curious as to like the process or the journey that you had being part of Allegiance and you reflected on the beginnings of your awakening as an actor, all of that. I mean, that, that that's what... Um, you know, lights a fire in my heart as a fellow actor, as an Asian American, as, you know, somebody who's dying to be a storyteller and to have our stories told to me. I'm trying to learn as well. All of it. I just threw like 18 things at you, but. Yeah. Um, you can pick the ones you want to answer. Yeah, yeah no, go for, for it. Sure. I gave you a buffet. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, getting a chance to be in Allegiance um, was uh felt like to me a culmination of a whole lifetime of learning about um, thinking about my Japanese American and my Asian American identity and learning about that through plays and through art and um, and then getting a chance to actually represent a story that that is about my own family's experience I mean very specifically that the musical is set in Heart Mountain and um, my dad's side was that's where they were that's where they were incarcerated so um, 
you know, it was a unique experience of having this sense of I'm getting to tell my my family story. And on top of that, that the fact that it was the kind of um, venue that it was, you know, a Broadway show. I mean, I'm not really that much for musicals in actuality. Uh, I don't know the great pantheon of musicals. unlike all the rest of my other fellow actors in that show, <laughs> singing and dancing their butts off. Um, the, but, uh, you know, I, all, I do know that there's very little representation on that level. Right. There's very few things that are out there, and most of them are problematic. Miss you know, uh, you know, you've got Miss Saigon, you have The King and I, um, you know, Flower Drum Song, which got a revisal with, from David Ernie Wong, so that went a long way towards fixing some of the things mm-hmm. there. South Pacific, which is not as bad as you think it'd be, but there's still <laughs> things that are yeah. antiquated and old about it. Yeah. So having, uh, you know, even though we only ran for three or four months, the, it, it exists now. And so kids can do it at some point once they release it. You know, there will be yeah. folks who are going to be coming up through the pipeline and they have another thing that they can do. And that's mm-hmm. super important to me. And then they can have conversations about what the Japanese-American incarceration experience is. Mm-hmm. You know, um, th- th- there was a lot of criticism about um, everything not being 100% um, historically accurate. Uh, and you know, and I can totally understand that point of view. And I, I think that you could argue the merits of it being like there are a lot of things that are right, yeah. <laughs> and and that it is important to that when we're talking about sort of the story of a Broadway musical that we go ahead and talk about the reality of, the, of things and the, the true true historical facts. But I mean, just as a couple of bullet points, the fact that you even talk about the incarceration at all. There's on one level, there's a lot of people who still don't know that, so it bears repeating. Yep. Yep. Two, a lot of people don't know about the 442, the 100 Battalion, that segregated fighting unit that was the most decorated, to this day is still the most decorated uh, military unit in U.S. history for its uh, size and length of service, primarily because they, they suffered so many horrific losses pushing up through Italy and then into France and Germany. But they did some of the most heroic things uh, in, during the Second World War. They say that the, the battle for the Lost Battalion and the breaking of the Gothic line are amongst the top ten things that are political lessons to be learned in modern warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, then we talk about the resistors. And a lot of people don't know who the resistors were. Now, these were people yeah. that when uh, it came time, the, the government wanted to say, okay, so we're going to let you out of camp, but you have to sign this loyalty questionnaire. And once you do, then if you're of uh, fighting age, then we're going to draft you. And so they said, well, you know what? We'll fight, but you have to let my family out of, ca- out of camp because you've uh, you violated their civil rights. And they said, no, that's not going to happen. So they went on trial, and they had this mass trial, uh, 63 guys, um, and he, who is still the largest mass trial for uh, draft evasion, and they were all convicted, and they spent four years in prison before Truman um, uh, pardoned them. But I, I think that so those things, even just by themselves, are super important because, and I, and I sort of link this to <laughs> this idea of talking about resistance before, was that a lot of people don't think that Asian Americans or Japanese Americans had organized themselves and, and were participating in civil civil rights activities. You know, um, 
and that there were people like Yuri Kochiyama or Grace Lee Boggs, or you know that there that there was a Fred Korematsu and a Minya Su and a Gordon Hinobayashi, people who resisted and fought back against um, not only people within the greater community, but people within our own community who who felt like. We're so besieged, you can't, you know, you can't make waves, you can't make noise, you're going to make it harder on all of us. But there were people who did that. Uh, so Right. And I remember, I remember learning about that when I took my Asian American Studies class in, um, in college. It was a literature class, and we, I read the Nono Boy, which you're part of the Ken Arasaki's, um stage version of that, right? That's right. I, I did the one that was the premiere in L.A. Yeah. The fact that you know, it opened up this dialogue of like what it actually means to be American, to you know, to value your rights as a citizen, is it, do you have to prove it by going to fight for your country or do you prove it by resisting and, you know, standing up for your rights? Yeah. And, you know, learning about those things is really intense because uh, those things, those issues became really uh, bitter um, uh, arguments within our community. So the no-nos, you know, so the loyalty questionnaire question 27 and 28, will you fight in the armed forces of the United States? Will you swear unqualified allegiance to the president of the United States and forswear any allegiance to the Japanese emperor were were problematic on a whole lot of levels. One being Issei couldn't, first generation weren't allowed to become citizens of the United States. So if they forswear allegiance to the emperor, they have no country. Two, the Nisei were like, well, what are we going to do? We don't know what's going to happen to our, um, to our, our parents, so mm-hmm. we sh- we might have to say no and no just so we don't get separated. Has mm-hmm. uh, Lassie not have said you know they had hostages? Yeah. Um, so the the, the no nos, but the, there was a lot of pressure from the wartime JACL, and that's the character I was playing was Mike Masaoka, who was a real character, a real person who was leading the the Japanese American Citizens League during during wartime, and he said. We all have to comply. We have to prove our loyalty. We have to. Um, he fought bitterly to try and get that segregated fighting unit formed because he felt like if they spilled blood, that America would see that they're loyal and that then they would accept them more. Right. There are a lot, of, but and so he vilified the, the nonos and the resistors. He said that you know you are not helping us. And to this day, the folks who went to go fight and the folks who said no, no, even and the resistors. There were bitter, bitter, um, contentious positions that 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 um, people yelling at each other in in public public forums um, on into the two thousands. And I think it's not until you get into the the late two thousands that there's even um, the JACL offers to bring the resistors in and um, apologize for their their vilification of them, or at least to try and re- create a reconciliation of their positions. Um, and there were there were vets who stood up and said nope, and they walked out. <laughs> so it, you know it's it, but those are things that are not their fault. You know what I mean? Like they were forced into these positions because they felt like they had had to make those decisions to survive. Mm-hmm. The government is as at fault, and the situation is, is what is tragic and also angering because they they. It was basically racist and a lack of political leadership that created that situation that that forced that that really drove a lot of communities apart 
So, yeah. you know, all of that stuff, learning about those things, just to give you a chance to do that in Allegiance was amazing to me. I mean, I, just, I felt so grateful to be there. And then to be able to engage with people afterwards and talk about those things, because this was happening at the same time when the primaries were happening, when, <laughs> mm-hmm. when people were saying mm-hmm. out loud, like, mm-hmm. oh, well, the Japanese-American internment experience, that's justification. We've done it before. Yeah. Uh, my, I, I, I was <laughs> flabbergasted. I mean, George Takei was flabbergasted. He got up on every in front of every mic he could, and he was like, you have it totally wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Opposite land. <laughs> um, yeah. Which is what's necessary, and that's. And I think that's, uh, I guess for me, I feel the click, the ticking, t- the clock, I can't English right now. The clock but ticking. The clock is ticking, right? And I feel this urgency because even in the course of this podcast alone, I'm Korean American, so I'm still even like, scratching the surface about understanding what's happened with with my background with my upbringing my grandmother escaping north korea didn't know any of this until my 20s didn't care to ask and i'm like why did i not care to ask and what can i learn from that what do i need to know my my grandmother's clock is ticking all of it right um the ironic thing that you realize when you realize your clock is ticking everybody's is and then realizing the relevancy of all these touch points about how history can educate us so profoundly in ways that it is cyclical and the things that like what what were the root causes or what were the implications of xyz decisions right but i feel like with this particular story which is so connect deeply connected with what's happening now, it's still not an, at all a mainstream story. It's still not something that people are referencing. They're only cherry picking and like in an absurd way. Oh, well, we did that and that worked. <laughs> like, are you insane? Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? And it's just, again, it, and it comes also with like the whole invisibility of Asians in general, right? And this is part of US history, but we're just going to like, you know. And that's why it's so, I mean, it's really great that these stories were able to be able to come out on the biggest stage, you know, Allegiance on Broadway. And I don't know How if... How many people um, follow Broadway? You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm a Broadway nut, but like... Yeah, and another big play that might be going to Broadway is Queen Nguyen's um, Viet Gone, which um, just finished its run at the MTC in, in New York. And that's about the Vietnamese refugee experience, which is another kind of cyclical thing that's happening right now with the Syrian refugee crisis. You know, it's... Everything's like happened before. Right. Yeah, I... Well, this is one of the things I was really glad to see when I had read an article about how, um, and you know, a lot of the Viet community, especially the older Viet community down in Westminster and down that way, uh, you know, they're really conservative. Um, but when the the question of Syrian refugees came up, they raised money and they said, we're going to send this money to help those people. Because when we were refugees, the American government stepped up and they let us in and they, they took care of us. They gave us. They let us survive, and and I think that that says a lot of different things, like empathy for the, that situation. But I think even larger is that, you know, you could say that the the American government had a responsibility to take care of those refugees mm-hmm. because they were engaged in that war, and in that same way, from invading Iraq all the way up to right now, where you have millions, five million people who are displaced. And we're having conversations about how we need to keep them out of our country. It's despicable. I mean, it's, it's awful not taking responsibility for your actions and, um, you know, let alone heartless. So those are the kinds of things that I think that 
Kui's play is is beautiful. I mean, it's yeah. it's just lovely. And and what's so great about it is it centers itself so much on the the Asian characters, of course. Mm-hmm. That but one of the things that he does that's so great is he transliterates everything. So he says, "This is how this he come a, a character comes out ostensibly Kui." He says, right. "Hi, I'm the playwright, um, and these are some characters who may or may not be my parents." <laughs> and he says, "And this is how they're going to talk." What's up, bitches? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what? And so there's because they're speaking Vietnamese to each other, so yeah. everything is translated into a colloquial. Um, in English, so that when we're listening, as Americans, as we're listening, we can understand the nuance and the humor and the energy and right. the, the love and the youth and the power and the anger and all of that stuff. It's so good. And then the white character comes out and they talk in broken English, like, like um, uh-huh. hamburger, French hamburger fries, hot dog. <laughs> Get her it's done. Yeah. Oh I was able to catch the production of it at the Oregon uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And it's I'm so amazing. jealous. Yeah. So the thing is, the funny time when I talked to you and I was in New York, if I had stayed two, no, one day more, I would have been able to see the, the MTC one. Oh. Yeah, with with oh my god, I was just like with a friend who writes for NBC and he had tickets. He's like, you want to go? I was like, hell yeah! And then I yeah, ticket was booked oh. wrong. You're gonna get you're gonna get other chances. Yeah. I think they're gonna do a, a, um, a production in San Diego. Yeah, San Diego, right? San Diego is yeah, like, like, but yeah. it's in New York and it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. the preview show. It was yeah. amazing, but I've yeah. heard such great things about it. And yeah. again, and then that lights a fire under my butt. And I was like, okay, and that's why, like for me, Gook, like the film that Justin Chan's making about slice of life in L.A. during the beginning of the L.A. riots. That's a that's a story. Again, as as a Bay Area girl, I didn't I knew about the riots, didn't know much about it. I didn't know the impact about it. I didn't know the roots of it. I didn't know the aftermath. I didn't know. Just knew that it happened. And that movie, again, I feel like I'm such a late bloomer in all this stuff, and Marvin's far more educated in Asian-American well, studies. Well, I grew up in L.A. too, so... But that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but, like, I had peers in Berkeley. Like, people around me were very engaged, and I feel so, like, odd that, you know, and I'm not going to spend the rest of my life beating myself up for not knowing this soon enough or anything like that, but there's periods of time where I'm like, how come I don't know this? How come I don't know this? And I can't be the only one, and when I talk to peers about it, again, there's varying... Levels of interest or engagement in knowing our own. I mean, there are schools that don't even teach Japanese incarceration. In That's what I'm saying. Um, I, I was in Maryland for it's an alternative uh, fact. Martin. I was in Maryland for grad school, and like we were showing, I was at an event where they were showing who killed Vincent Chin, and like half the kids didn't even know who. I didn't that know was. who that was until yeah. like a few years ago. Didn't know. Yeah, so, I came into that really late too. Yeah. yeah, and so the, it's just fascinating. That's why I appreciate this podcast, honestly. It's a chance to like meet awesome people, and then also just around the table, we're all learning, whether it's from, you know, because somebody grew up in like the middle of America after being a child of refugees. It's a different story than being the San Gabriel kid who like took Asian American <laughs> at Asian American studies at UC San Diego. It's a different, and that's, I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student all the time here. <laughs> well, everyone has you no know, different... Like, my experience growing up is totally different than someone who grew up... I had a friend uh, who grew up in Indiana as the only Asian kid in, in that Pawnee. school. And, like, I it's totally it. different. But I feel like I'm learning a lot more from Greg than he's learning from me, actually. Well, it's an exchange. <laughs> I don't know. All these film festivals are opening my eyes a lot. Yeah. I'm watching a lot of more documentaries. I'm like, I'm learning. <laughs> But I'm, I'm curious to see, like, again, for me, I'm grateful that I like Broadway and that this was something, because to me, I can't, and this I've learned very clearly, because I'm a movie fanatic and I love these shows, you cannot force feed anybody to like, oh my God, you have to watch Allegiance. I will, I will keep saying that. 
but whether that'll actually happen or not is a question mark. And so I want just, for me, the dream is like, let's create more of these stories, not just obviously theater for me is like, yes, I'll go and I'll pay for that ticket and I'll happily go there. I don't, you can't force somebody else, but maybe they will feel that inspiration or the, the responsibility you know, this is an opportunity for me to get educated on X, Y, Z and have a good time. Well, you're in luck because you can catch Allegiance in your local in a theater, movie theater. Um, next week. Next week or in two weeks? It'll probably be sold February out. 19th. At the 19th, yeah. 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 Well, last time last time it happened, which is when I saw it, I saw it at a, the Santa Anita um, AMC. Um, it which was, is intense because the, that was an assembly center. Yeah. Well, in Santa Anita, the racetrack. There. Yeah. They actually opened up a second theater because it sold out so quickly. So, you know, you never know. That and was a day I couldn't... Remember my tickets got... So I was telling him about it yesterday. Oh. <laughs> how I was on standby because my cousin was trying to... Anyway. Oh. <laughs> and then it sold out. And I was like, no! It was really interesting because there were a lot of people there wearing the 442nd, like, go for broke badges. And it was, yeah, like, the fact that the movie version is playing everywhere means more people who couldn't go to Broadway can right. see it. Right. You know, for, you know, a lot less than we would have paid for. And the short films and the articles. Like, again, I just like, I, I have this, I have this sense of urgency. I don't know if it's shared, but as somebody who like participates so heavily in the Asian American community, I'm just like, y'all, y'all get on it. Tell the story, tell the story, get it out, get it out. Tell your version because your version is different than mine. And we need all those versions to help like make a well-rounded, you know what I mean? Like, what's, what's the telephone it's like you're trying to like tell it generations beyond and you touched upon that we're we're good we're losing these the the time to like hear it directly from sources right so i like interviewed my grandmother at christmas to like get her story and recorded it screamed at my family in the process for being noisy (laughs) and why are you enjoying your holiday i'm interviewing my grandma shut up um but you know like i feel that urgency and I, i don't know like maybe that's being paranoid or maybe it's totally valid i don't know but i feel the urgency to tell and implore and ask my creative fellows to yeah. like let's get on that well especially yeah. these days where you know um you know, when when i watched Fiat gone at the oregon shakespeare festival like the majority of the audience was not asian mm-hmm. like we were there part of as part of kata so it was the most asians they've had watched the show but like all the the majority of that audience was like old white people. Right. You know? And those are people I want to see. It's like, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a, it's not a one thing of like, oh, we just need to educate our fellow Asian people, but it's everybody. Everyone benefits from understanding one another more and yeah. seeing connection. Yeah. And it's a great point for uh, theater, especially it's a great point for community um, connection and engagement, right? One of the things that they did uh, up in Oregon when I was there for the Kata festival, the, the, um, uh, the Asian American uh, National Theater Conference was uh, some folks had organized refugees from uh, Portland. So these are these are kids who were coming from all over the world and they're they're trying to get resettled now. And you know some of them have different levels of English, but that show is a show about refugees. Mm-hmm. So and then at, afterwards there was a closing ceremony and. Um, you know, a couple of the folks invited me to come just sit in and as they everyone sort of giving thanks for something about their experience and it was really intense to to realize that you know these are a bunch of people who had organized that these kids could, 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 they could go see a bunch of different kinds of theater and potentially find a way if they wanted to to, to you know 
that that's a possibility of the way they could voice their experience. But to know that they're, that these folks are working on a play about refugees and here we have some folks whose stories are being told, you know, that that is a kind of, uh, and if there's any kind of impact that happens, that's, you know, one of the best things that could happen to you as a theater practitioner is that you have this sense of, uh, you know, you've touched upon something for people who live in the real world and whose stories you know, it's are connected to the, the story that you're telling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, because there's that whole spectrum of what w- people use art for, whether or not it's calling somebody out or whether or not it's to stir <laughs> outrage or whether or not it's to inspire love or whether or not it's to engage with our family. You know, mm-hmm. like there's all kinds of ways to organize and, and art works in, on a whole lot of different levels. What I love about theater is that it forces you to... Um, well, it doesn't force you. It allows you to live in somebody's experience. And in that way, you broaden your capability of empathy. Um, and, and, and I think that that's super important. Yeah. You know, like that can that bears repeating. Yes. <laughs> well, it was, it's been amazing talking to you these past, uh, this past hour. Um, really quickly, um, you brought a flyer for Day of Remembrance. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I wanted to invite folks to, I don't know if you've ever been to one, but there's something called Day of Remembrance in Japanese Americans. And Japanese American communities around the country are doing this. It usually falls around somewhere the 18th or the 19th. In L.A., it's uh, on the 18th. And Day of Remembrance is to commemorate the, the signing of Executive Order 9066, which uh, was paved the way for our... Um, incarceration uh, during World War II. So February 18th, 2 to 4 p.m., there's an indoor program and an outdoor rally uh, at the Japanese American National Museum uh, in Little Tokyo, 100 North Central Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Honda will be speaking. There'll be taiko, music, song, poetry. I will be performing there, so you could come talk me up, and um, uh, and then we can all rally. And there, there inevitably is are going to be some folks from the Muslim and Arab communities because we are people within the Japanese American community think it's really important that we stand up in solidarity with those communities right. in, in in ways that folks did not stand up for us. And not that they, we didn't have allies, but we want to make sure that uh, we're being counted. Um, awesome. Yeah. And this is the 75th anniversary of the signing of executive order. Mm. So, um, you know, maybe it's not a coincidence that things repeat themselves. Yeah. And um, that's for the L.A. Day of Remembrance. Yes, and that's right. Do, um, if you're not in the L.A. area, do do a quick Google search. It's probably, you'll probably find something nearby in your local New York, community. San Francisco, yeah. Seattle, in Anchorage. I yeah. mean, all over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much. Um, if people want to learn more about you or find more of your stuff, where can they go? They can just Google Greg Watanabe. <laughs> all kinds of fantastic things will come springing up into their faces. I love um, the voice you gave that. Awesome. <laughs> another character, Greg Watanabe. Thank you so much, Greg, oh, thanks uh, for, for joining me. us. Um, He's for an actor. <laughs> We didn't even, you know, you didn't even give Minji acting advice. Maybe offline. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't um, know if she needs advice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I all, I'm always open for it. I love hearing people's gems. Thank you again to our listeners for listening to our episode. Uh, if you want to reach the podcast, you can email us at podcast at collaboration.org. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and wherever podcasts are found through our RSS feeds. Um, leave us a rating review if you listen to us on iTunes. It really helps us out. Uh, and thanks to Dia Frampton for use for song Crave uh, for this month's intro and outro. Thanks again for joining us, Greg. Mm, thank you. Uh, and we'll see you all next week. Bye, guys. Bye. I'm
You're listening to. Whoa! Hot luck. Hot luck.